I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. Just the two of us, Ruthie. I know, so nice. We should actually tell everyone that we're, sadly for me, very far apart. I think I looked it up the other day. Are we 3,019? 3,200 and something, is it? Miles? Miles. You're in Ottawa and I'm in London. Mark is the United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Action, the UK Prime Minister's Climate Finance Advisor, and the former governor of the Bank of England. He is also a really good cook. Okay, can you just give me the go command when you're ready, and then I'll start. Okay, and a one, and a two, and a three, go. Hello, I'm Mark Carney, and I'd like to read, sorry, I'm gonna start again, Ruthie. Sure. Because I don't wanna read, I wanna tell you about how to make torta di capri. The ingredients start with 350 grams of blanched white whole almonds, ideally, if you're Ruthie from Andalusia, a sustainable farm there, 350 grams of dark chocolate, at least 85% cocoa solids, 250 grams of unsalted butter, and make sure it's soft, 250 grams of castor sugar, something we didn't have when I was growing up, and five eggs, and make sure you separate them. Normally takes me a few goes to do that. Preheat the oven to 150 degrees, so this is going to be a slow bake. Butter around a 20-centimeter cake tin. Line the base with greaseproof paper, and something I often forget. Then you need to separate the almonds into halves. Finely grind half of them in a food processor. Put that into a bowl, and then coarsely grind the other half, and include the chocolate with that. Cream the butter and sugar until it's pale. Add the egg yolks one by one, and then add all of the ground nuts and chocolate. In a separate bowl, whisk the egg whites until they form soft peaks. Fold half of those egg whites into the chocolate mixture to loosen, and then the remaining egg whites. And then you're pretty much ready. Now you'll notice that there's no flour in this cake, one of the unique aspects of Torta di Capri, but it's, uh, it's part of its genius. Bake for 45 minutes or until set. Torta di Capri. By Ruthie Rogers. Oh, thank you, Mark. Interesting as I was listening to you read, you sound so much like a cook <laughs> and explaining it so clearly. I think the thing about the, the torture to Capri, which is also interesting, is that you do use very bitter chocolate, don't you? It's kind of the it is a very dark chocolate. I mean, sometimes I think when we used to make it in the very beginning, we even made it with a hundred percent unsweetened chocolate. I think you did, because uh, in one of your books you have a handwritten note and you used to have to source it from you used to have to source it from America of all from places. Baker's <laughs> unsweetened chocolate. Did you ever <laughs> have that right. in Canada? Baker's unsweet came in that uh, box. That's a, you know, interesting. Yes, my mother used to use Baker's unsweetened chocolate and she used to melt it, you know, uh, boil the water and put a cup mm. with the Baker's in the cup and then it mm. would melt in the uh, in the cup and then it would be added to the uh, to the baking. Well, that's interesting because I, I was talking to your brother, Sean, last night 
<laughs> and we were talking about your mother. He said that she grew up in a town that you couldn't get to by road and that you'd have to wait for the boat to come in with supplies and that she was a you know, really passionate and really good baker. Yes. What did she make? Yes. No, that's right. I mean, she, to go back to the start, she grew up in a town called Britannia Beach, which is a spectacular location on what's called Howe Sound. So if anyone listening has ever gone to Whistler, oh, yeah. there's now a highway that goes through Britannia Beach. It's an abandoned mining town. But at the time, it was isolated. As you say, there was a boat that would come once a week, but just a beautiful, a beautiful spot. Yeah. And then moved to the Northwest Territories with my father, and that's where I was born. So that's in the effectively the Arctic of uh, Canada. Wow. And a great cook and a great baker, as you suggest, as my brother obviously told you. And just a huge variety of baking, from cakes to pies to cookies, as we would call them, you know, wide range of biscuits. And I was, uh, when I was younger, I was an enthusiastic baker inspired by my mother. Hmm. So maybe that's partly why I gravitated to the Georgia DiCaprio. My baking muscles have atrophied a bit. Um, so I had to go yeah. to the simpler. But there was one thing, I'll tell you, there's one thing about what's well, not really baking, but there's one, almost all the baking was comfort food. I found it tremendously comforting and uh, enjoyable, except there would be mornings in Edmonton where I grew up and I'd come upstairs, my room is in the basement and I'd come upstairs. And if my mother was making uh, oatmeal, Mm-hmm. That was that was a bad sign. I had a sort of Pavlovian response to that because it oh. meant it meant that it was at least minus thirty out. Oh, uh, I see. Because that's when she that's when she would make oatmeal, and that. So I've now overcome my aversion to oatmeal, but it took it took decades. So did you grow up with good food apart from baking? Pretty traditional sort of variants of meat and two veg. I remember growing up, I mean, it's uh, it's not why I became a central bank. Maybe it is why I became a Maybe. central banker, actually. Yeah. But um, <laughs> you know, there being a period of time during, you know, the inflation years, so mm. the mid-70s, where there were a lot of casseroles in my life mm. and uh, sort of combinations of things, which um, are probably not recipes that are, are still used today for good reason, mm. but they managed to stretch, you know, ground beef or... Um, other things uh, a little farther, which made sense at the time. Your house in London, I think it'd be safe to say that the largest room in the house was a kitchen. Yes. And that I'd walk into your house, there would be either one of your four children or you or all of your four children or somebody in the kitchen. And there was a sense that the kitchen was the place to be. Yes. That ability, if, if you can manage it to have the kitchen and space in the kitchen for others to be there and whether they're reading a book or answering emails or I remember when two of our girls were younger one of their favorite things actually right up until last year was they had this thing that they would do I don't know why they would do it immediately after dinner called airplane which is um, you know one of them would lie on the ground and put her feet up and the other would you know (laughs) balance on that and, and do it and they'd either do that or immediately after very large meal, go out and bounce on the trampoline, which is the kind of thing you can do when you're 12, but, you know, not the wrong side of uh, 40. And was it very different than your work life in terms of being the governor of the Bank of England? Did meals become very formal? You know, that bit has changed a fair bit over the years. So there is a formal dining room at the Mm -hmm. bank. And, you know, when august visitors are there, either you can have a formal lunch or a dinner. When you have conferences, you know, a, a, 
dinner in the what's called the courtroom, which is an absolutely spectacular room, Sir John Soane-inspired um, room. And that brings the full majesty of the bank and the history of the United Kingdom uh, to bear. And it's, you know, particularly if there's a G7 meeting or something like that, you have it there. So that's great. You know, there, there is a very good cafeteria at the bank on the sixth floor of Threadneedle Street, which most people eat in, the old and the new, I guess, uh, which for many institutions in the UK is, is is the right way to do it. You want to keep, I think, and certainly as an outsider, I wanted to keep some of the traditions. Mm. But it wasn't the case of, you know, going for lunch every day in the staterooms and, um, you know, finishing it off with port. Although there were many days where I wish I, <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> oh, you sneak down there. Did you, did, <laughs> it's also interesting talking to people about working and food, you know, one of my favorite stories about you is when one of my granddaughter's friends asked you who was the most important person you'd ever met. And you said the Pope. <laughs> and you said that you'd had lunch with the Pope. And I was wondering, I never asked you, do you remember what you ate? What What would the Pope have for lunch? Well, we were in the heart of Rome. I think it's an interesting question. I, was, I don't know the answer to this. I suspect what the Pope has for lunch, or at least this Pope has for lunch, is much simpler than what the Pope or the Vatican served at the lunch that I attended, because he wasn't originally scheduled to come to this lunch. And um, it was the day before the uh, World Cup final between Argentina and uh, Germany. Um, So it would have been 2014, I guess. And uh, of course, he's Argentinian. And uh, the previous Pope who's still alive is, is German. So that was, you know, and he showed up, the Pope showed up at the lunch and, you know, bit of the conversation about that. Mm. But it was an elaborate lunch, you know, several courses. And there was a pasta course and I think a fish course is the main, then cheese and dessert. But he told uh, he told this parable at the at the start of uh, the lunch. The Pope says that, um, look, we're you know, going to have a nice meal together. It's very important sharing. And we're going to start the meal with uh, with wine. And wine is uh, many things. It has a bouquet, a color. A taste that complements the food and alcohol, which enlivens our senses, and you know, it enlivens all our senses effectively. Uh, but we will finish the meal with grappa, and grappa is alcohol, and it. it's wine distilled. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an interesting you know, analogy. But then he makes the analogy, which says, and humanity, people are many things. They're rational, they're passionate, they're curious, they're altruistic, they're self-interested. The market is one thing. So he means the market economy. It's one thing. It's self-interested. Your job, and then he points to everyone who was, I was at a conference with a very wide range of people from business and finance, and and he points to all of us, 60-odd people who were at this lunch, and he says, your job is to turn the grappa back into wine, to turn the market back into humanity. And he sits down. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. 
It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When we met in Tuscany, there would be times of the day where we just couldn't find you because you were running (laughs) and you would disappear for hours. I remember one part of the beginning of your day, which was drinking a whole liter of water, which I still try to do because, you know, you told me that, I think that it was Jeff Bezos who told you. it was the other way around. Ruthie, he was nothing. He was nothing until I told him. I'll tell you, it was my friend, Nikolai Ahrens, who told me this, and he's a chemist, very accomplished guy. Uh, And he told me the most important thing for cognitive functioning is to drink a liter of water, you know, first thing in the morning, because whatever, whatever you've eaten or drank the night before, your brain dehydrates overnight. So this helps. And I began doing this. I happened to, I'm not like super close to Jeff Bezos, but I mentioned it to him when I saw him. I was on a hike with him. Where was that? It was in Switzerland, actually. I mentioned it to him. And then I saw him about 10 years later. And he, he said, quite remarkably, he said, shows the guy's got a good memory. He said, he said, Mark, I think of you every morning when I, when I drink my water, which is fair because I do think of uh, Nikolai every morning. And now I think of you, Ruthie, and I wonder if you're keeping yeah, it. I think of you and now yeah. everyone listening to this, that we're all going to be super cognitive. Yeah, that's right. Thank we're you. going to all think of each other. So while we're, there's quite a lot of time to think when you're drinking that much water, isn't there? So you're still starting your day with water. And then do you have, do you start writing right away? I was thinking about whether... You could describe your working day when you were writing this extraordinary book, Values, uh, Building a Better World for All. I mean, I'm most productive, as I I suspect many people are, in in writing in the morning and a real premium on getting up, ideally, and most mornings, um, certainly during lockdown, meditate for 15, 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. water, write for a couple of hours before eating. Mm. And ideally, I will have left... When I'd finished writing the day before, the work in mid-thought, if you will, almost mid-paragraph. So you have something to pick up when you start writing. Oh, yeah, it's it's slightly, I found it slightly tough if you finished a chapter oh. and then a blank page issue as opposed to restart my mind on it. Is that something unique to you? Or do a lot of, I never, that's interesting. I mean, I, I'm slightly embarrassed to, to call myself a writer. I mean, I guess I do. Why? Book. You've written a book. I've graduated. <laughs> you quickly moved me on from being baker uh, in this conversation. Uh, yeah, we'll go back to the baking yeah. for sure. By that time, is everybody out and about and you have breakfast by yourself or do you make it yourself? I tend to, it a- yeah, I would tend to make it myself a granola, some fruit, cappuccino. You are talking all the time about values, values and food and climate how we're going to feed everyone and still be sustainable. Is that part of your concern right now? In terms I, of I, think, I think there's a few things that come out of that. One is 
you know, I've always found, I mean, you know, the provenance of all the food at the River mm. Cafe and you've researched it and mm. in most cases visited, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the, your example of the almonds. And uh, I know we've had long conversations about the, you know, the olive oil and the, the tomatoes and the, I mean, and on and on and on. And that's important because the connection, the connection that comes with that and the understanding that comes with that and the and in many cases, the history that comes with the, the methods of productions and, um, and, and the values that come from the people. So there's that. Then the big issue, which you're alluding to, which is on climate, which is that around 20% or so of greenhouse gas emissions come from, from agriculture and land use. Um, and um, and a, a substantial proportion of that is, you know, could be reduced through regenerative agriculture through reforestation through different methods different foods uh, as well and um, the reality with with climate change is there's there's no one simple solution to climate change there's no one silver bullet and there's many things that do need to change and and part of it is to ensure that uh, we have sustainable agriculture that we have sustainable methods and that the that as the world you know we hope as the world becomes, more equal and and um, people progress around the world mm-hmm. that uh, that we can not just feed everybody but we can feed everybody in a sustainable way into a high standard and that requires knowing where the food comes from how it's prepared sourcing locally as much as possible obviously and having the balance and you know we have a long way to go on that but a much greater awareness and certainly you find I know with your with your grandchildren I find with uh, my children and uh, and their friends an acute awareness of these issues and a passion about them that uh, you know gives one hope for change and an important journey that uh, we'll, we're all going to be on. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What do you look for in a restaurant? Do you love restaurants? Uh, I love what restaurants. do you love? I look for a variety of things. I like simple i I like simple and open as a restaurant so i don't like sort of dark and um you know creviced uh restaurants so much i like simple and open i think influenced a bit 
I spent a year in Japan, so that you know, kind of reinforced some of this. Right. And I do like when even I can tell the quality of the ingredients and the preparation, the sort of slow cooking that you know brings out the intensity of the flavors. Mm. I like vibrancy in a restaurant. I like you know hearing the sort of yeah. buzz, if you will, of a restaurant. Was there a time when you would go into a restaurant here and people would stop you? Would people want to ask you about Brexit or would they interrupt your meal? Or, you know, would they ask you about when all that was going on? Did you feel that it wasn't private, that you did you sort of raise uh, yourself for people? I mean, I saw it happen. Yeah. The reason I do is I remember walking down the restaurant with you and people definitely wanted to trip, reach yeah, out. People would trip me as I went by. Yeah. yeah, no, we, they no, um, they were they were we, excited, but people eating the River Cafe were never want to trip you. No, that was one of the unusual things I think during the period that uh, you know, look. It's never a good thing when central bankers are more prominent because it means that there's you know, deep problems in the financial system mm-hmm. or the economy. But given that circumstance, I mean, I yes, I was recognized virtually everywhere I went and. Uh, quite often stopped and uh and and that was uh I, that took a fair bit of uh, getting used to and uh, you know accepted it and uh, and you were able to eat we i think we try and we try and protect you know as much as possible when because you are i mean I, you know there is the public nature of a restaurant and then the very private nature of the table yes. so yeah. you just go to a restaurant for the comfort and and the connection and i think that comfort with your mother's cooking and connection with, you know, the times you and I have spent in places and all different types of cooking and making zucchini flowers mm-hmm. and on the grill with Luigi and the Fiorentinas <laughs> or the fact that you're so far away from me now and we're connected by a conversation about food and ingredients and eating. And then the comfort of that, you know, the comfort of being able to see you and on my screen and to talk to you about food and the memories that we have. And so I was thinking in terms of comfort is talking about food. Comfort is eating food. And I was wondering for my last question to ask you, what would your comfort food be? A comfort food. Okay. Can I just say one thing before I say that, which is that, Mm. so I mentioned my Pavlovian response to oatmeal, which was negative. (laughs) My Pavlovian response to Fiora di Zucca, you know, zucchini flour and yeah. Luigi's Fiorentina, this amazing thick steak, is absolutely the opposite. I think, I think, wow. absolute heaven in that that wow. whole ritual around both of those is uh, an extraordinary thing and a connection. Comfort food, I, I say, my comfort food is pasta pomodoro, mm. and it's not just because I'm on your podcast, Ruthie, but the way you make yeah. it, yeah. because it combines exactly what I like. It is a simple recipe, very few ingredients. It takes, what does it take? It probably takes two hours to prepare the sauce. You have to cook the onions for a long time till they dissolve in the olive oil, and then you add the tomatoes and then cook it yeah. and reduce it down to, so it's so thin. Yeah, got it. Uh, a bit of garlic, and then it's combined with the pasta, and it's so good. And you know that every time I come into your restaurant, I, I look yeah. at the menu and I, you know, I pick out a main and I pick out, you know, something for the dessert, et cetera. And then I say, can I have the pasta pomodoro? Uh, <laughs> and the answer, the answer is yes. The answer is always yes. <laughs> that is totally comforting. And yeah. just a final thing, which uh, if I may, 
to bring it all uh, full circle, which is the other day you and I had a lovely Zoom. For your book, yeah, to celebrate the publication of your book and the friendship. And I seem to recall that uh, some of the guests took comfort in Negronis, but um, our two daughters, Cleo and Tess, who are the two home with us now, they made That's right. River Cafe, and I didn't know they were going to do this, but they made River Cafe Pasta Pomodoro, including the homemade pasta, which it was a perfect comfort combination so yeah that's pretty good well there we are connection comfort and a yes thank you mark thank you ruth to visit the online shop of the river cafe go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk river cafe table four is a production of iHeartRadio and atomized studios for more podcasts from iHeartRadio. Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.